This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to talk about yet another um, mass shooting in the United States, yet another hate crime uh, against um, citizens of the United States uh, and many others. Um, the shooting on May 14th of uh, 13 people at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, 10 of whom have died. Uh, the victims were targeted uh, by a 18-year-old uh, individual who believed that uh, people of color were replacing uh, white people in our society, and he killed uh, 10 African Americans uh, and intended to kill many, many more. Uh, This is uh, now um, not just one more shooting in our society. This has become almost a normal part of our uh, politics today, Um, and it seems as if it's only getting worse. And we're here today to talk uh, about why this is happening, well, what we can do about it and what the future of our democracy is in light of this recurring racialized violence in our society. We're fortunate to be joined by uh, a good friend and colleague uh, who is really a thought leader around these issues, someone who's been writing as a historian, a public intellectual, a scholar, and an observer of these issues for years, and uh, someone who I think is really trying to bring history forward in helping us think through these tragedies and what we can do to make change in our society. This is uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Peniel Joseph. He's the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values um, at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the university as a whole. He's a professor of history, professor of public affairs, associate dean for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion and the author of numerous books, a leading scholar of African-American history, the history of black power, and the history of racial politics in the United States. He has a forthcoming book, which is really going to be a terrific uh, contribution to our thinking around these issues that, that will be out this fall, The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Peniel has also written The Biography of Stokely Carmichael, a fantastic book on Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., The Sword and the Shield, and his earlier work uh, where he and I first became friends uh, studying black power in the United States. And he writes frequently for CNN and many other uh outlets. Uh, Peniel, thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, Jeremy, it's my pleasure. Before we turn to our discussion with Peniel of this uh, difficult and important issue, we have, of course, our poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Summer Moon. Summer Moon. Well, let's, let's hear this week's installment. One, I haven't followed the news for days. Every time I see your headlines, I am somehow drawn back to the image of my own foot in a tennis shoe stepping over the edges of a parking lot on the edge of Buffalo, inches from the end of America. But I would like to say that somehow I was in Buffalo once, driving from Syracuse to the sea, and we stopped at a gas station. I imagine the supermarket only yards away. I think it was in the same place, the same neighborhood. I used a urinal at a gas station and bought a road atlas at the counter. 
There are 230 miles between Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Topps Supermarket in Buffalo, New York. There are 230 miles between you and me. And tonight, there is a red summer moon, a red summer moon for you. The moon is now in the depths of the umbra, and we stop our automobiles on the side of the road, and everybody turns their lights off, and the city is dark, and the world is dark, and we stare up at the white moon turning red in front of our eyes. Tonight, there is a red summer moon. For you, a red summer moon. Two. They shot up a synagogue in Pittsburgh. They gunned you down in a supermarket in Buffalo. You were too young. You were too young. I was in Pittsburgh once. The sun reflected off the steel of the buildings and puddled in little pools along the old interstate bridges. There were three rivers. I rode in the back seat between three rivers. The child dreams of rivers, sings of rivers, speaks of rivers. In the chaotic city, seen for the first time from the bridge, nameless now in my memory, is always the city seen for the first time, peering up through the clouds to the tops of the buildings, rising crudely over the hills like bayonets. They protrude in three different directions, so you know the world can never be sewn back up. Now they will have to see it. And between Pittsburgh and Buffalo, there are perhaps 230 more miles of this. Either direction, we are lying always face flat on the floor, pressing our face to the floor as the blood pours out, piles up, surges in and out like a hurricane. Three, we are in the eye of a hurricane. Around us, the walls of water, they billow unceasingly, constantly, shaking the hills with their echoing shouts of who. Why? And in the 230 miles between Pittsburgh and Buffalo, somewhere in some little town, even as we can see the edge of the storm coming towards us, we are in a little tin box diner eating sunny side up eggs and hash browns with black coffee. You are looking in my eyes and saying how very sorry you are, and I am looking in your eyes and saying the same. And we keep mumbling to each other, sweet nothings, they are sweet nothings. As the wind rips off the windows and the glass shatters, nothing out of the ordinary. As the floor comes flying up to meet our faces, nothing out of the ordinary. As the walls of the diner crumble at the feet of a world on the march, nothing out of the ordinary. You look me in the eyes flying up in the sky on a violent cloud, and we say goodbye. You, hovering 230 miles above me, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing out of the ordinary. Your refrain, nothing out of the ordinary, Zachary, it's, it's haunting, isn't it? Yes, it really is. That's, that's sort of what my poem is about, is the sort of recurring nature of this violence and the ways in which, even in two cities only 200 miles apart, there can be these two tragedies that, that seem not only to symbolize our, our pathologies as a society today, but also, unfortunately, seem to signal where we're going. Right, right. And you're referring, of course, uh, in addition to the uh, shooting in, in Buffalo on May 14th of this year, the uh, killing of 11 uh, Jewish members of the Tree of Life congregation in Pittsburgh in October of 2018. Yes. 
and and how recurring um, and repeated these terrible events are. Uh, uh, Peniel, you you've been studying this uh, more deeply than anyone else I know. Uh, why is this happening? Why why are we seeing these recurring attacks on uh, African Americans, Jews, and others in our society uh, by by young men often with guns? Well, I think we need to go back to um, the period of Reconstruction. And I know both of our new books really deal with that. And I think that when we look at the great replacement theory and the New York Times just did really an essential two-parter uh, by Nicholas Con- Confessori on Tucker Carlson and looked at 1,100 hours, over 1,100 hours of his Fox News show. And to really, in a very objective way, just just sort of just the facts distilling the kind of hatred and misinformation and racism and anti-Semitism and xenophobia, Islamophobia, uh, queerphobia that that uh, Fox News spreads, but also specifically Tucker Carlson, that's the number one rated uh, cable nightly news show in, in the nation. Um, so th- its immediate roots are, are, yes, that kind of ecosystem that is sort of normalized replacement theory, we think about 2017 in Charlottesville, and they're saying that the Jews will not replace us. And so much of this is connected to a toxic stew of nativism and white supremacy that is anti-Semitic, that is anti-Black, uh, that is anti-multicultural uh, uh, and multiracial democracy. But I think where we need to go back to is is what you know. Both, both Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, but Eric Foner is called the Second American Founding, which is um, the aftermath of the Civil War from 1861 to 1865 and the Reconstruction Amendments that come out of that Civil War, the end of racial slavery, birthright citizenship, and and voting rights for Black men, which eventually become voting rights really for, for, for all people, all citizens. And during that and I, you know, I argue in the third Reconstruction that that Reconstruction period is actually a little more than three decades. So I go beyond the presidential Reconstruction configuration of 1865 to 1877 and go from 1865 all the way to the November 8th, 9th, 10th uh, white riot in Wilmington, North Carolina. That's the first successful uh, racist coup in the United States that displaces a biracial, interracial government with white supremacists including some who are mentored by uh, Benjamin Pitchfork Tillman, the South Carolina ultra-racist, ultra-white nationalist. And so when we think about that period, that's where we see the first real um, replacement theory uh, in in a, a modern form. Because the United States is much similar to the way it was in 1865 than 1619. So 1619, it's a great um, sort of theoretical framework, and we're thinking about the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning project, 1619 project. But we, our institutions, even our landscape, some of which has had to be rebuilt, as you know, Jeremy, in the aftermath of the Civil War, we're thinking about Richmond, we're thinking about Atlanta, we're thinking about parts of, you know, Gettysburg, right, that, that, are, that are destroyed during the Civil War. And so when we think about that period, that's where we get the first period in the aftermath of racial slavery this fear, not just of labor competition, interracial labor competition, but this fear that Black people would replace um, white people as the sort of the dominant group economically, politically, and culturally. And connected to that fear, as we'll see in the 19th century, are going to be waves of new immigration. Uh, The Irish, 
uh, Jewish, Italians. Um, Catholicism is going to be a fear too. So the first time we had this, before you had social media, what you have is cartoonists, you have uh, minstrel shows, even after racial slavery, you have newspapers who are who are making up lies about voter fraud. They're making up lies about um, sexual assault against white women committed by black men. Uh, they're making up lies about corruption. And all that is to provide justification for the violence that's coming, the policy violence, the legal violence, the legislative violence, but but first and foremost, the physical violence. So we've we've been here before, and I would argue the period of time we're in is much closer to that first reconstruction than the civil rights period that we we usually think of as analogous. That that's very compelling, and I think it provides an important historical context for, as you said so well, Peniel, some of the institutional and attitudinal um, experiences that have not gone away, that are still layered into our society. But but why has it gotten worse in the last decade or so? Why why after the election of an African American president? And the the development of a high tech economy and um, the wealth creation of the last uh, two decades. Why is it that we've gone back, in a sense, to this old history? Well, some of it has to do with the declining um, validity of just sort of a national story that we can tell ourselves. In a way, um, the Obama election, uh, quite ironically, concludes. Um, a 50-year racial justice consensus in American history. So we can start at June 11th, 1963, with John F. Kennedy's uh, race speech on national television supporting civil rights, all the way up to the June 25th, 2013 Shelby v. Holder decision, which um, really destroys the Voting Rights Act by ending Section 5 preclearance. And you see in the last nine years a spate of really successful voter suppression. I would argue that the main reason Hillary Rodham Clinton uh, is not president of the United States and did not become the first female president was because of Shelby V. Holder. It wasn't, uh, I think that Russian collusion, I think that um, uh, what was going on with the emails and Comey, all that impacted sexism. But I would argue that Hillary became the first Democrat to run in the post-voting rights era and the post-racial consensus era. And she lost. She lost. Part of the reason why her Black vote diminished in comparison to Obama's vote was not something as simple as she wasn't a good candidate, or she wasn't quite charismatic, or even the super predator comment of decades before. There were new institutional barriers that prevented Hillary Clinton from winning Ohio, from winning Pennsylvania, from winning Michigan, from winning Wisconsin in the manner that Barack Obama had won those states in 2008 quite convincingly, but in 2012 required real organizing. And the, the, the Obama running in 2012 for re-election, that's the only national election where African-American voter turnout exceeds white voter, ter- voter turnout in American history, 66% to 64%, right? So part of what's happened in the last decade, I would argue, is that we're living in, in a post-racial justice consensus uh, period. And so we've seen social media and the amplification of hate speech 
fill in a new story about America and a new civic discourse that's really uh, divisive, that's really uh, driven by fear, anxiety, misinformation, and yes, racism and anti-Semitism and this great replacement theory. And so part of this is that economic inequality since the Great Recession has exacerbated. So the rich and the wealthy and the powerful have become even more rich, have become more wealthy and more powerful. Within that paradigm, though, we've seen certain elites. We're thinking about J.D. Vance, Mehmet Oz, who are running uh, for office as, as Trumpers who tell poor whites, the white working class, but really whites from all strata, that the enemy is a fifth column within, uh, which is uh, blacks and really Jews and um, at times Muslims, at times queer people. Um, And that kind of misinformation and disinformation spread on such a wide level and amplified again by Fox News. But also it's not just Fox News, it's Fox News it's the American Legislative Legislative Exchange Council. Um, it's it's different political action committees. It's the entire at this point Republican Party. There's a feedback loop that's been created. The top down does the anti CRT legislation of Rick DeSantis and what's happened with the new Virginia governor. The bottom up though are these hate groups, and we've seen them: the Boogaloo Boys. We've seen these different hate groups. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, now this young shooter here, but we saw Dylan Roof in Charlotte. And one thing we can't forget, Jeremy, is the hate crime in Orlando uh, that killed 49 people, mostly LGBTQIA, uh, the hate crime in El Paso um, that killed uh, over 23 people, um, and also the hate crime in Atlanta that targeted Asian Americans that killed eight people, six of Asian descent and the rise in AAPI. So part of what we're seeing is this, yes, it's this anti-Black racist narrative, but the great replacement theory is about white supremacy that really represents an existential threat to our entire system. And right now we don't have any, we're on the defensive, Jeremy. We don't have, we don't have institutions that are able to say, we think about Joe McCarthy in the 1950s and the idea of have you no shame, sir, and getting McCarthy out of the picture. We don't have that right now because we, we're living in a post-consensus American society and we need a, a new consensus um, in a hurry. You mentioned Kyle Rittenhouse and the two terrorists in, in Buffalo and, and, Char- and uh, Charleston. Uh, why do you think so many of these shooters, these white supremacists, are are eighteen year old young men? Why do you think so many of them are are so young? If this is really drawing from a historical narrative of white supremacy, well, I think that white supremacy always refreshes itself, Zach. And I think that uh, one of the things we see is that this idea of male culture and masculinity, and sometimes we have. Uh, different right-wing commentators who say, well, the problem is that, you know, because of queer people, because of feminism, men don't know what it means to be men, but their vision of men is uh, toxic. It's sexist. It's often racist. Uh, It promotes rape culture and sexual assault. And so you have these young men who are really utterly lost and mystified 
over what their place in society is going to be. Um, these are young men who who not necessarily received a great critical uh, public school education. Uh, these are young men who are looking for validation, and they become part of these silos, these communities, online communities, gaming communities, chat communities, 4chan communities that tell them that um, you know black people and brown people and Jews are the problem. And if we could just get rid of those folks violently, um, things would be better, right? That tells people that the the shooter in uh, the Tree of Life and the shooter uh, in Charleston are heroes, right? And these different white supremacists who put down these uh, manifestos, and this latest shooter uh, has a manifesto of, of his own as well. So part of this is there's a crisis of masculinity in the country and a crisis of identity, but that crisis of masculinity is not a crisis that somehow men have gotten too soft. It's a crisis that uh, we think about deindustrialization. We think about rampant inequality, and there's no way for uh, these young men to express their feelings and their vulnerability, uh, to seek at times help uh, for physical wellness and mental health as well, right? Uh, these are folks who need counseling, who need help, who need a lot of love, frankly, need a lot of um, empathy uh, before they go out on these these murder sprees. Uh, and there are signs. There were signs for this young man when people look at the threats he made at his school, threats he, different behavior that he exhibited. So I do think that sometimes we thought to ourselves after 2008 that because of Barack Obama, that was the only lesson a whole new generation of young whites were going to receive. Part of that was true. There, there is a group of young whites, um, young young people all across the country who imbibed Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, the first family, and became uh, real advocates of multiracial democracy. And we shouldn't forget that. Some of that we could see during the 2020 election when Biden gets 81 million votes to 74 million. But we still have to focus as well on the 74 million. So the 81 million, that's a great story. But the 74 million, Trump gets 11 more million votes running as an overt white supremacist. You know, that's got to give us all pause. That has to give us all pause. Because even if we say we're never going to defeat uh, racism, uh, defeat anti-Semitism, defeat hate, uh, 100%, we can't have it be such a powerful and muscular and robust part of our democracy. Right. It's interesting also that many of the same technologies that have radicalized so many of these young men have also connected people across the country who share an interest in multiracial democracy and share uh, a, a dream of a more inclusive future. To what extent that do you think that these new technologies are, are fueling this uh, this outburst of white supremacy, this this recurring recurring violence. Well, I think the new technologies are, and Zach, you said it very well. I mean, they're they're fueling both proponents of multiracial democracy and reconstruction, and they're fueling these advocates of redemptionist uh, redemptionism and white supremacy. Um, on some levels, I think that they are amplifying what is already there, but I would say that simultaneously now. Because social media and technology has become all-encompassing, it's become an extension of ourselves in very, very dangerous ways, I would say that they're also creating new white supremacists and they're creating hate. Now, they're connected to a feedback loop 
of, again, one major political party, in this case, the Republican Party. They're connected to a feedback loop of think tanks. They're connected to a feedback loop of podcasters who are who are uh, who promote racist ideas and misinformation. I'm thinking of Joe Rogan as one of the, the, the most popular. So they're connected to all of these things. And in a way, these young white male um, teenagers are sort of the tip of the spear of white supremacy, right? They can be, they can be, they're, they're sort of both disposable and they can be valorized. Sometimes uh, they get off, like in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, but even when they don't, as in the case of Dylan Roof, who's been sentenced to death, and I, I suspect, as in this case of the Buffalo shooter, they are valorized as sort of these icons of white supremacy and 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 fighting for this white nationalist, uh, this ethno nationalist state. So this is what makes the issue so difficult, Peniel, right, is that the, the the spaces that provide free speech for those who are progressive activists, for those who want to defend a multiracial democracy, those spaces are also hijacked, as, as they were in the 19th century, uh, by uh, individuals who want to encourage hate, who want to spread lies and, and uh, want to undermine uh, the standing and the, the, the safety of, of other people in our society. How do we, how do we address that? How do we address these, these spaces that are being hijacked in these ways? I think one thing that we need to do, and this is really tough in a Congress that's so divided, is really have safeguards for all social media platforms, meaning that the reason, one of the reasons why we don't curb hate speech, whether this is on Facebook or Twitch or YouTube, is because we don't have real rules of the road. <clears throat> Congress doesn't understand it. Uh, the tech giants are, in quotes, policing themselves. And really, the common denominator here is people want viewers and people want advertising and people want to make as much money as possible. So we think about platforms like Twitter, which has, you know, countless numbers of, of bots on Twitter masking as real people. Same with Facebook, same with most of these platforms. And what are what are these bots doing? Some of these bots are, are just advertising bots. Some of them are malicious. Some of these bots are from Russia and overseas, right? So part of this is getting our own house in order. And yes, technology is always ahead of legislation and public policy and congressional hearings, but we have lagged so behind. We are in the prehistoric ages for the rules of the road for the internet at the federal level. At the same time, local communities have to act as well. Uh, one of the things, we had an event um, recently about this uh, at the LBJ School, and we talked about um, coming together as a community uh, in ways where we go beyond our silos. So we're talking about, you know, the ADL Anti-Defamation League was there. Um, we had the Interfaith, Interfaith Action Council of Texas was there. Uh, we had scholars and community organizers. We had imams there. We had uh, a whole sort of rainbow coalition of, of service-oriented leaders in Austin. And part of it is that we have to go beyond these silos and speak to each other and speak to communities that at times are not necessarily receptive to the idea of multiracial democracy, but find common ground with those communities. Because 
really what we're seeing right now is an existential threat to American democracy in the form of uh, anti-Semitism, racist violence, um, economic inequality, but then legislation that at the on, on one hand uh, exacerbates this voter suppr- uh, voter suppression anti uh, critical race theory uh, you can't teach black history in public schools uh, anymore the criminal justice system needs to be reformed on the one hand you've got these repressive policies and then through social media you have disinformation and misinformation where the entire country can't even agree on what happened January 6, 2021, when the Capitol, U.S. Capitol, was assaulted with uh, uh, folks who had racist signs, anti-Semitic signs. I mean, this is this is a, a huge tragedy and travesty, but in the past, we would have had bipartisan support to weed this out of our democracy. Uh, instead, we've got misinformation and lies saying that those folks in January 6th were heroes, that it was BLM who did it and not MAGA folks. Um, so we're, we're in real trouble. And until we can come up and sort of get our national story straight, right, come up with a new consensus, we're going to be at pains to then have a strategy of how do we deconstruct all this hatred that's being weaponized for political gain, economic gain, but also in terms of violence and privilege. So, so how do we build a consensus like this? You, you've studied this in other periods. Um, and so what can we as historians take from the past for today for building consensus? Because quite frankly, it, it seems so difficult, Peniel. I mean, you, you, you witness this as, as all of us do, right? Um, there are people coming to uh, even a relatively progressive city like Austin coming to town and uh, spreading anti-Semitic stickers on um, playgrounds and uh, protesting and saying that uh, uh, Jews have caused COVID. Uh, a young man tried to burn down our synagogue uh, in our neighborhood, motivated by this. And, and you have people shouting that um, Asians are responsible for COVID as well. Uh, all the anti-Semitic uh, and anti-African-American and anti-Brown people statements uh, in support of often police brutality. Uh, this is within our city, right? Uh, how, how does one build consensus, e- even in a place like Austin? I think at University of Texas, we, we have to be um, at the center of this conversation. Uh, we're really the most high-profile um, entity, and we can bring together the synagogues, the mosques, the churches. Uh, we can bring together the nonprofits, but we can also bring together the activists and the business community and the entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists, um, as, as, as you and I both know. Um, I think w- we have to get people to have skin in the game um, and invest in stopping hate and invest in bringing people together together. Uh, in a way that's institutionalized, that goes beyond reacting when these things inevitably happen. So the only way we can sort of build that beloved community in Austin is we have to get our own house in order. And as you know, we have inequality here. We have racial segregation here. Uh, We've got, um, um, you know, anti-Semitism here and racism here. So I think we can, we can model, um, the the framework that is needed nationally, um, but we have to come together uh, in ways that are innovative and impactful um, in perpetuity. 
right? And so that's going to require investments. And I think the reason why University of Texas is so important is that it brings people together. Texas sports, Texas football, Texas innovation, uh, Texas, the LBJ school, the policy school, the law school, the medical school, it brings people together. So we have to be at the forefront of creating that common identity and that common story about bringing people together here in Austin in the wider state of Texas. And if we can do that, we're going to be a national model because, as you know, Texas is really one of the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, multilinguistic states uh, in the country. You know, so when we say what happens here changes the world, we're we're right. Um, but Texas should be at the lead of this, right? We should be at the lead of building that beloved community and making sure something like this never happens again. That's that's so very well said, Peniel. And I know you have to to go to your next uh, engagement. We really appreciate your your sharing your historical insights and contemporary uh, perspective uh, with us, and and for for giving us those inspiring words. Uh, thank you, Peniel. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. So, Zachary. Um, I know as a, as a young person um, who struggles with these issues, who looks out at this world uh, as described so well by Peniel and sees all these challenges, all these existential threats to an inclusive democratic society, I know you think a lot about these issues. How can we um, build the kind of consensus that Peniel is talking about? How can we do that better uh, among young people? And I don't just mean within your school, but I mean across uh, different schools and different uh, backgrounds? How can we bring young people together with some kind of consensus that moves us forward toward a multiracial democracy, as, as Peniel encourages? I think that's one thing that we maybe maybe uh, didn't emphasize enough in our earlier conversation, is that I think there is, to a certain extent, at least among a, a large group of young people, a sort of consensus already on these issues. I don't think there are very many young people who would challenge the historical facts, the historical truths about January 6th or white supremacy in our society. I think that the the, diff- the more difficult part is to get those people politically engaged and to not just build a, a coalition of minds, but a coalition of political and 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 governmental thinkers on this issue and to make sure that people take those values that hopefully they're getting from the internet hopefully those are the values they're taking and 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 put them into practice um and and not just make them empty words uh, so i think we need a new culture of public service and public engagement and i think we need to encourage young people to to pursue those kinds of careers those kind of positions uh, from a young from a young age and 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 view them as something noble and 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 hopeful right so it's not just um, hearing the ideas it's right. actually beginning to put them in practice Certainly. at a very young age yeah. right and that itself builds further coalition and and, and changes minds I think. right right well I think this has been a a really um, insightful provocative and uh, eye-opening conversation and um, I want to thank Peniel again for joining us uh, Zachary I want to thank you for your poem and for your insights and questions uh, and thank you most of all to our listeners uh, I know so many of us are struggling today to make sense of the whirlwind of change and violence around us and working hard to try to make our democracy more inclusive and uh, more vibrant and a safer place for so many uh, of us. And uh, I appreciate uh, everyone joining us in this conversation. I think this conversation and many like it are, are essential steps forward for our democracy today. Thank you for joining us. 
for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Coudini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.